0: Praise the Lord! If you all have a Bible, if you want to open, we're going to continue on in Mark, what we've been doing, and uh, open to Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one, and we're going to pick up here in verse fourteen, and go through verse twenty tonight. And it says in Mark one fourteen. Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. And let's pray. And Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you'll just manifest your presence here in our midst, and I just ask that you'll open our hearts to receive your word and the truths of what it means to wholly follow you and the total commitment that you demand from us. And I just ask that you'll speak that to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in 1978 there were these three guys that decided they were going to take this helium balloon all the way across the ocean. They started off in Maine and they were going to head all the way over to Paris, France in a helium balloon. So I don't know all the logistics of, of maneuvering one of those things, but I guess it can be complex. But one thing is certain, they, they have too much weight, they will just start sinking. And that was a danger that these people encountered along the way. So they had to get rid of weight, or what's known as ballast so they could stay aloft and not end up in the ocean dead. And so as the journey progressed, and they got six days into it in Europe, one of the crew members wrote this in his journal. He says, we have been expending ballast, or wait, getting rid of it. And he said, we've been doing that wisely, but as we neared land, we had to do it not cheaply. They had to get rid of things they would have rather not gotten rid of. And he said, overwent such gear as tape recorders, radios, film magazines, sleeping bags, lawn chairs, and most of our water and food and the cooler that was in it. So listen, these guys were committed to getting to their destination, right, no matter what the cost. And we're going to see tonight that for the disciples and for all of us, to make the choice to follow Jesus is probably the wisest choice that we'll ever make in our lives, right? But it doesn't come cheap. Because just like these men, we're going to have to abandon things that we might consider to be essential or important to us. But we have to get rid of them because they may weigh us down or hinder us. That's the call to discipleship. So we all know salvation is a free gift, but the cost of following the king and his message is great. It's going to be a great personal cost, and it's going to demand total commitment. And so the first thing I want to look at here in Mark beginning at verse fourteen is the king and his message and we have beginning in verse fourteen it says now after that john was put in prison jesus came into galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of god john was put in prison now the word prison really isn't there The, the greek literally says john was delivered up or handed over Well, obviously we know he was handed over to the authorities and he was put in prison but that is the exact same word that was used as de- Jesus used to describe his own fate, what he was going to face. In John 9 and Mark or Mark 9, I'm sorry, the same book, it's Jesus said this, he says, the Son of Man is delivered. The same word, put in prison, is delivered into the hands of men. And in Mark ten, he says, The Son of Man shall be delivered. There's our word again, unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And what John's doing in bringing this this first sentence is, he is deliberately linking what happened to John the Baptist as a result of preaching the gospel and taking a stand for righteousness to what is going to happen to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for doing the same thing, for living a righteous life and preaching the gospel. They both ended up in prison, delivered over, handed over to the hands of wicked men and imprisoned and so what does that tell us or those that heard the good news of jesus christ being preached through this gospel that there is a price to be paid both by declaring the gospel and by living the gospel now listen this is what jesus said and listen everyone in here that's a christian is a disciple do you know there's there's not a thing of you can't be a disciple but you can be a christian we're all disciples but listen to what our lord said he says the disciple that's us "...is not above his master, nor the servant above his lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his own household?" And so what does that say to all of us that are disciples, all of us in here that call ourselves Christians, that we are not above our master?" And if we're living the life and they called him the devil, said that he was operating by the spirit of the devil, how much more, Jesus is saying, will they say that about us? If we're preaching the truth and living the truth, that's what should be happening. That's what's happened traditionally down through church history for those that took a stand on the gospel. And how much more is that going to happen here in America? It's already happening that those that stand for the gospel and stand for truth, they're going to consider us to be demonically inspired, that we're not going along with all this homosexual, just you name it, living together. Christian fornicators, well, no, that's not right. Well, yes, that's what we think it is. That's what a lot of people in America think now. And he says we're not above our Lord. But what happens here, John's put in prison. He's basically taken off the scene. And the one he talked about, that the greater one that is coming, is now heralding a message. Because that is what this word preaching here means. It means to proclaim or to herald the good news of the kingdom of God. Because the way that word was typically used back then, when a son was born to an emperor, a proclamation was made. There was an announcing or a preaching or a heralding of that event. A son is born to the emperor. That's what the herald would come out and say. He would announce it. And there's this idea of certainty in this proclamation. It's a word of authority. Something's occurred. You all need to hear it. And that's what we have happen here with Jesus. He's preaching and proclaiming a great event. It is a great event. The arrival of the kingdom of God. And how did he announce that? Look in verse 15 preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. In verse 15, he said what? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so what did Jesus mean when he says the time is fulfilled? Or some translations will say the time has come. You know, did he mean time like 7.30, it's time for breakfast? Or did he mean time like it's 5.45 and it's time for dinner? That kind of time? That is not what he meant. <laughs> no, he's talking not about a particular time of day, but about a season or a period of history. So, old Thomas Paine, back in the Revolutionary War days, he said, These are the times that try men's souls. And by times, what did he mean? He says, this is, He meant this is a season of history where certain events are taking place. This revolution, this oppression by the English, things that are trying men's souls, those are the times we were in. And so what is this period or time that's been fulfilled that Jesus is here announcing or proclaiming? Well, this period of time, God in his providence and in his sovereignty has at this period of time, Paul wrote, when the fullness of time came, there had to be a specific time when God brought all world events for this to happen the fullness of time, that God is bringing the promises of the kingdom of God to their fulfillment. No longer future. There's no more waiting. Because, listen, God, we we only understand history not through history books, but as we interpret history through the lens of the Bible. Because God is in control of all of history. He is sovereign over all events, even the crazy things we see happening now. They're all pushing towards the book of Revelations. It's all going to cause all of that to be fulfilled. So, all of when we read history, all the rising and falling of these nations, it all has one purpose. And that was to bring the world to the point where Jesus could come to this earth up to this time and herald, announce, proclaim the kingdom of God. All of history up to this point is to bring to fulfillment all of God's purposes from the beginning of time. God's time has come. Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. So how is the kingdom of God is at hand? How has that time been fulfilled? How has the kingdom of God come near? You know how? In the person, at this time, in the person and ministry, of the Lord Jesus Christ because what have we been talking about that Mark is setting forth here he is the king and the kingdom of God is God's rule that is the kingdom so the reign of God has come that's what he's saying and right now though God's rule is in the heart and lives of people that is how it is being established right now through the Lord Jesus Christ at this point in history So everything that the Old Testament pointed to and everything there we know pointed to who? The Lord Jesus Christ is now being fulfilled. God's long-awaited kingdom. Israel had been waiting for this. The kingdom, the spirit to come, the Messiah. And it is now being fulfilled and it's come in a person. And this is the one that Isaiah prophesied who would be anointed by the Holy Spirit and preach the good news to God's people. This is what the king would do. The Spirit of the Lord, Isaiah 61 in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus announces this as the king. This is Luke 4 after he's come out of the wilderness, the same time we're at right here with Mark. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And it says he shut the book, rolled up the scroll, whatever he did. And you read there, it said all eyes were fastened on him. Here's the king announcing he has come with the anointing, with deliverance for the captives. All eyes were fastened on him. There wasn't anybody sleeping in the synagogue on that day, I guarantee it. They're looking and you know what he adds to them? We're saying the scripture, this is fulfilled, the king and his kingdom have come and after Jesus says that and they're all looking at him, he adds this this day he says this scripture is fulfilled in your ears he's telling them there is no more waiting the messiah, the king, the kingdom of God has come I mean that is good news the year of jubilee and that's when it happened as one man wrote, it's the same thing. The kingdom of God is near at hand, as to say the kingdom of God is right under your noses. That's what's happened. It's here, it has begun. Now, it's not fully revealed yet, is it? 1942. Britain won a battle, Alamein. Is that how you would say it? I say that right, Alamein. So, the war was still a long ways off, 1942. Long way from being over, there was a lot of battles that still had to be fought and won against Hitler. But Winston Churchill said this famous line. He says, now this is not the end, winning this battle. He said, it is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And it was. right. So Jesus coming did not mean that the kingdom of God was established in its fullness, right, in its fullest sense. But he would soundly defeat Satan on the cross. And the end is certain when that happened. It is certain. And there have been many battles, haven't there, just like then, that have been fought and lives that have been lost in the last 2,000 years since his death. So there is this future sense still to the kingdom of God, even though we're here and it's at hand, right? Because Revelation 21, it describes the kingdom of God when it fully comes. And it says there, there will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more cancer, praise the Lord, no more divorces, no more war, no more poverty. There will be nothing on the new heavens and the new earth, but righteousness, peace, and joy, and health, and the presence of God everywhere. Do we see that now? No, it's not. If you see that now, I'd like to know what you're drinking, smoking, or whatever eaten right when that happens it's going to be what Graham's Goldworthy has made famous what the kingdom of God means God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing and we don't have that yet but Jesus said the kingdom of God is near but yet it's future because what did he tell us to pray in the Lord's prayer thy kingdom come well why are we praying that every day I hope you are in some form if it has come, it's not here yet. But Jesus and Mark is saying what? The time is fulfilled. Look in verse 15. And the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it is present. So here's the question we got to ask ourselves. Which is it? <laughs> is it future or is it present? And I would answer yes. It's both. Okay. <laughs> So its future manifestation, it will come and it's going to be witnessed by everybody and it will be experienced in its fullness by all of God's people in a new heaven, and a new earth and I'm really looking forward to that. Every day I get older, the more I'm looking forward to it. I really am. In a lot of different ways. But for the present, look, Jesus Christ is still the sovereign Lord of the universe and he's ruling overall, isn't he? We know that, but His reign is veiled, and it's not apparent to everyone. You go out on the streets, and you talk to your average worldly person and say, is the Lord Jesus Christ reigning Is His kingdom? God, they'd, be, they'd look at you like, are you crazy? <laughs> We're hoping we don't have the reign of Donald Trump. <laughs> I don't see where the Lord Jesus is reigning anywhere. So right now, His rule is where? It's in the hearts and lives of His people. And to these people, His power and deliverance and kingdom blessings are offered, right? And we see that in the Gospels, Matthew 12, in deliverance from evil spirits. So listen to this. Jesus said this in Matthew 12:28. He said, if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. It's present. And how did he tell those people they could see that? Because the Spirit of God is showing dominion over Satan. And you don't have to wait. He's saying, You see me by the finger of God casting out demons. You can know it has come unto you. Present manifestation of the kingdom of God. In other words, we don't have to wait to be delivered do we? And a lot of churches teach all the kingdom of God blessings except for forgiveness, they're not going to come until that eternal state and until you get your glorified body. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what the New Testament teaches. We don't have to wait for the kingdom to come in that power then. It's present now for those of us that have him reigning and ruling in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke eleven twenty. 20, listen to this. He says, but if I with the finger of God cast out devils, Jesus says, no doubt. There is no doubt about it, he says. The kingdom of God is come upon you. So we know his future, but he's telling these people, hey, it has come upon you. Don't have to wait. If you would, put something there in Mark 1 and turn over to Luke 17. Luke 17, and look at verses 20 and 21. And it says this it said, When he, Jesus, was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God, it comes not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or Lo there. For behold, he says, The kingdom of God is within you. I don't mean to mess up anybody with how we've always heard this verse preached, but. Do you really think he's telling the Pharisees who he said were full of dead men's bones that the kingdom of God is within them? I don't think so. I really don't. The Greek word, I believe, is better translated is in your midst. The kingdom of God is in... That's the way a lot of translations will translate that. I think it's a more accurate translation because here's why what we've been saying. The kingdom of God has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's telling the Pharisees the kingdom of God is standing right in front of you. You're looking for all these signs and wonders? It's been right here. It's in your midst. Look at the healings. Look at the exorcisms that are taking place, these evil spirits that are being cast out. Look at the signs I've performed to bless people, to go about doing good, healing all that were oppressed by the enemy. They didn't want to see that, though. They wanted some great miraculous, they still wouldn't have believed, honestly. But he's saying, You're looking for all these observations. You want all these crazy things to happen. He says, The kingdom of God is standing right in front of you. It's been in your midst, you've seen it operating. But they were blind guides. And so here's the point we can partake of the kingdom of God now. That's the word for us tonight. How is that? How do we partake of the kingdom of God now? Turn to, you're in Luke 17, just turn back a chapter to Luke 16. And look what it says there. Look what Jesus says. Luke 16, 16, Jesus said, The law and the prophets were until John. And he says, Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. We know that. And what does he say, though? And every man presses into it. And that word presses into it means to gain an object by force or inflict violence on it. In other words, if we want our share of the kingdom of God now, it's not going to just fall in our laps. There's going to be warfare involved. Isn't that what we talked about in Ephesians 6? Isn't that what he's saying? It's not going to just fall in your lap. People have to press into it. Matthew 11, he says this, Matthew 11, 11 to 13, he says, Jesus says, truly I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist, he says, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist, Jesus said, until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And you say, well, listen, I'm just, I just don't have an aggressive personality. You know, I'm just kind of a laid-back person. Well, I'll bet you that might change if you hadn't eaten all day and I grabbed that piece of chicken that's stuck in front of you. I'll bet you might press in a little bit for that, right? But here's the thing. What is it? I mean, isn't it all just a matter of desperation, isn't it, as far as how much and if you will press into the kingdom of God? You know, Mark 5, 24 It says in there that there was a large crowd that was following him, and they're pressing in on him. He's being jostled, this huge crowd. They're all around him, pressing in on him. It would have been, he'd have been hard to get to. A big crowd, all crowding around him. But guess what? There was one woman that was desperate, wasn't she? Had an issue of blood 12 years, wasn't getting any better. She was getting worse. She was probably dying and she's desperate and she pressed through the crowd that was pressing around Jesus and I think she might have been a little violent she might not have said excuse me she might have kinda elbowed her way through a few people because she needs something that he's got and she would heard about other people touching him that they were healed and she's like hey I'm not even supposed to be here I'm not allowed to be around people period and she's pressing through a crowd that's pressing in on him and that's what he's talking about the violent take it by force and since the time of John the Baptist, you've got to press into it if you want your share of the kingdom. That's what he's saying. And that's what faith is. That's what faith really is. And Jesus told her, she got her healing. He looked at her and he says, daughter, she's, she's trembling. She's, she's thinking, man, I'm not supposed to be here. The law says I'm not supposed to be here. He looked at her and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. That's taking the kingdom by force. Isn't it? Because <laughs> Hebrews 11:6 6 says this, but without faith, it's impossible to please him for he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that just sit back and wait for him to do something for him because they have a need. That's not what it says, is it? He's a rewarder of whom? Those that diligently seek him and only the desperate will do that So we move on here back to mark if you would mark chapter one how do we enter the door of this kingdom what's the entry condition and we have right here the king has laid down his conditions he says the kingdom of god is at hand repent ye, he says and believe the gospel now we talked about what it means to repent just a few weeks ago <laughs> what does it mean to have a change of heart a change of mind, and most importantly, a change of direction, right? So your entire life, we said, it's not just give up a little bit here and there. Your entire life has now has to take on a new meaning and purpose. So what does that mean to repent, to enter the kingdom of God? Your entire life is turned over completely to Him. And this has been said many times by many people. I'm going to say it again. But what it is, it's giving Jesus the steering wheel of your life. And he's in the driver's seat. That's just a good way of describing it. You're giving him the steering wheel of your life. We're no longer driving the vehicle. So, unlike the way it is in a lot of Christianity we find this day, it's not us driving the car with Jesus sitting next to us. And we just look over him and occasionally, Lord, am I going the right direction? Or, you know, I know you told me to go this way, and we make excuses for the detours we're making and the shortcuts we're taking, right? (laughs) Or we say, hey, and he's over in the driver's seat, wait a minute, there's my friend, would you get down? I don't want anybody seeing you with me, right? Or my neighbors, you know? (laughs) No, that's not what it means to repent and believe the gospel. Repentance means the Lord is the one driving the car. He's the one that's in control. And so, a true Christian is what? He is completely committed to God's word, to following his word. And I think we say that a lot of times. I don't know how much we really do. So, that means all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our emotions, our finances, our sex life, our thoughts, our relationship, everything is turned over to him. And you guide me by your word how I'm supposed to guide my life that way. It's not what we think anymore or what the world tells us to think. It's the Word of God, has to guide everything we do. And that's what we're all about here, I hope. That's why we're teaching tonight. That's why we had preach and teach. So listen, shepherdship, we know it's an error, right? It's not a good thing that you have to submit yourself to some man that's going to tell you everything. No man has a right to do that, right? No man has a right to tell you where to live, who to marry, where to take a trip, any of that. But guess what? Jesus does. That's what I'm trying. He does have a right to tell you every single one of those things, and we don't have a right to tell him, well, this is what I'm going to do. When it, especially when it contradicts what his word says. So let me ask you, has there ever come a point in your life when that happened? and You gave the wheel to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, here's my steering wheel of my life. Sit in the driver's seat. So I think some some of us have started that way and we get to a gas station and we decided we wanted to change drivers We got back in the driver's seat right and jesus is a gentleman the holy spirit's a gentleman if you insist on driving he'll take the back seat but you know what i think he does a lot of times? i think you're driving away you put him back in the back seat and i think when you're in that ditch that you drove in you'll feel a tap on your shoulder and he'll ask you are you ready for me to get back in control isn't that the way it works Ask if you want to switch back. But he doesn't just say there to repent, does he? He says you also have to believe the gospel. And so why should a person abandon everything that they hold dear and follow this Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago? Why? He's not around anymore. I've never seen him. And that's why it says repent and believe, because repentance is based on faith once you understand and believe what God's Word says about your sinful state, the wrath to come, the love of God displayed by the cross, that the sinless Son of God took the punishment that was due me and that was due you, took your punishment, rose from the grave and is coming back to judge the living and the dead, we're all going to have to face in that day. I'd say once you understand and truly believe all of what I just said, you'll give everything up. When you see where your sin's taken you and the wrath that is to come, and yet the love of God displayed on the cross to deliver you from that, and the fact that one day that judgment is coming, you'll give everything up. You'll repent because of what you believe. Faith produces repentance. Well, it's quiet, but that's good. Everybody's thinking. Because, listen, a disciple... All of us that are Christians, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, can no longer live the way he wants. Isn't that what I've been saying? You, we can't. Second Corinthians 5 says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now that's saying a lot right there, isn't it? He died for all so that they who live, that's me and you, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. But listen, when you do that, when you give your life and determine you're going to live for him, your life then has purpose, doesn't it? And I would say this, as a man says, all of a sudden, life makes sense, doesn't it? Because all the world, <laughs> the world's asking, what am I doing? Where am I going? And what is this all about? That's the questions the world's ask. And do you know when those questions get the loudest? I was just at one, at a funeral. They should anyways. If you're a, an unsaved person or even a saved person and you've got any sense about you at all and you're there at a funeral, those are the kind of questions that should come in your mind. What am I doing? What is this all about? Because death is the fear of all fears for the world. And that last funeral I was at, I was looking at a lot of gray heads and I was sitting in the back and I'm thinking, what are these people thinking? I know what I'd be thinking, I know what I am thinking. So only the message of the gospel and the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God answers the questions of life, what life is all about. You know, John 3, 16, we all know that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, and you know what it says there? Should not perish. You know what? how that word could also be translated? Should not be wasted. As Parrish Reedhead said one time, a life that is perished is a wasted life in God's eyes and he said he sent his son so that your and my life and people in the world their life is just not a wasted life God cares I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked he says but rather that the wicked would turn and live that's why he sent his son you should still be there in mark one and the second thing i want to look at here is verses sixteen through twenty and what we see there is jesus's mission was to establish his message so here's the king he's coming to establish his kingdom And look, it's not done the way you think that it would be done. And it certainly wasn't done the way the Jews thought it was going to be done, right? Because they were expecting what? We all know that coming Messiah to overthrow whatever government was oppressing them. And who was the government currently? Rome. (laughs) The zealots and all, they were expecting him to come overthrow that Roman government. And John the Baptist's father, listen to what he prophesied in Luke 1. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He prophesied this about Jesus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear. Well, that's what they were thinking. They just didn't understand how that was going to be accomplished, that it wasn't going to just happen all at once. So instead of this anointed Messiah the king, the son of David, instead of him amassing this army around him and training them with swords and shields, right? What do we have? What's the picture we have here? After he's come and heralded his coming and heralded the announcement of the kingdom of God, his next thing isn't to amass an army. What do we see him doing? He's strolling along the seashore. <laughs> he's gone up to Galilee. Galilee. Taking a stroll along the seashore, and he notices some fishermen going about their business. I mean, that sounds like some laid back Hollywood movie, doesn't it? The fisherman in the sea, you know, and you're taking a walk, here's the son of God. I mean, that is not what you would expect. <laughs> Except, here's one thing think about what he's doing when he's doing that. He's walking about people going about their daily lives, their daily business, and he is invading their lives in a radical way, isn't he? Coming up to them. Because what is he demanding as he walks by them? Total obedience, isn't he? And allegiance. He's messing with them. It's like, who does he think he is? (laughs) You know, he walks up to, stop what you're doing. Everything you're doing, leave your family, leave your dad, leave your boats, leave the hired help, leave this business. They had to be fairly successful. They had servants working for them. They weren't totally stupid, right? And they're in a a place where there is a ton of commerce coming in there. There's a lot of people buying fish. They're shipping it literally all over the world. That Sea of Galilee was loaded with fish at the time. And he's telling them, you stop what you're doing and you come follow me. Look what it says there in verse 17. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me. And he says, I will make you fishers of men. I mean, that'd be like today. We got Charles Clifton. He's over there. He's laying rocks somewhere, minding his own business, you know, putting a little mortar in here and there. And along comes Jesus. And he tells Charles, put down the trowel. Come after me and I'll make you a builder with living stones. I think Charles probably first of all would faint. And then he'd be going home to Tanya and say, what'd you put in my lunch? <laughs> but that's what's happening. Think about it. Who else could make such a demand? Somebody just walked up to you on your job, Ben, and just said, hey, I want you to just stop laying carpet or whatever you're doing, and I want you to come follow me. What would you think? He'd be like, huh? There's no way. The only one that could do that is the king. With the fullness of the Spirit on him. Because, listen, there was an anointing on those words and on that call. And so what we see is God establishes his kingdom and inhabits it with the most unlikely people. Isn't that what we just talked about in Judges with Gideon? Gideon was not a likely candidate to lead Israel. Well, what do we read about in there? So we're saying when the Spirit of God comes on a person, things happen. And they're happening with the Lord Jesus Christ happening I mean big time happening but when the Spirit came on Gideon and he blew his trumpet what happened it says we read in Judges 6 it says the people gathered and why because he could really play the trumpet he's like Louis Sashmo Armstrong whatever his name is he could blow a trumpet no I didn't it it's because there was an anointing on Gideon and on his trumpet and so Jesus is walking along that seashore and calls men from their work Why should they come? Because it's God's anointing on him. He's the king empowered with authority from the Holy Spirit. And that was all through his ministry. Because we have in Luke 14, the multitudes gather around him. And why is that? It's because of God's anointing on the words he speaks. He's the king. He's the Messiah. And just like he does here, he basically tells them you need to repent and believe the gospel. That's so what he does in Luke 14. It's the king setting down the conditions for being part of his kingdom. And guess what? I'd like us to turn there. Please. Luke 14. Beginning in verse 25. Luke 14:25 he's just said some hard words to a crowd about following him and not having any excuses and it says in verse 25 and there went great multitudes with him and he turned it says and said to him verse 26 "If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters yea and his own life also he cannot be my disciple And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sits not down first and counts the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king? Sits not down first and consults whether he is able with ten thousand to meet him that comes against him with twenty thousand, or else while the other is yet a great way off he sends an ambassage and desires conditions of peace. So likewise he says, Whosoever that's all of us, he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he says it again, he cannot be my disciples. And so the king only wants those to follow him that have counted the cost. And when that word comes to us in the power of the spirit, the same message is delivered and we're confronted with the cost of discipleship. That's what these men were confronted with. And what is it? What is the cost and demand of the king to be his disciple? Total commitment. And here's the thing, is the king, he is not concerned if you reject him and his message. He's not really worried about it because whether we understand that or not, it is not his loss. It's our loss. And we need to see that. God doesn't need us. He really doesn't. He's totally self-sufficient in and of himself. But in John 6, when the multitudes rejected his message, it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back, and it says they walked no more with him. He said, one too many hard sayings. And we're like, "Uh uh-uh, we're we're not walking with you anymore. And he turns to the 12. He's down to just 12, and he says, will you also go away? He asked him. He didn't sit there and, you don't read about him begging and pleading with the others. Oh, please come back. I mean, I'll make it a little less stringent. A little more grace and love. I'm sorry, I didn't mean what I said. Oh, he doesn't do that, does he? He just turns to Peter. You go away, and Peter says what? He says, to whom shall we go? (laughs) You have the words of eternal life. And is that the way we feel about the words of the Bible and the words of our Lord Jesus Christ? Where else is there to go? Who else are we going to follow? We've forsaken all to follow you. It's worth it. The kingdom's at stake. So when Jesus called those four fishermen back in Mark 1, when he called those four fishermen, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, what was their response? Verse 18, it says, and straightway, that's our word immediately. And immediately, when he called them, it says, they forsook their nets and followed him. Immediately, it says, they leave their jobs and follow him. And their lives are what? They're changed forever. Because that's what an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ does. Just like when we talked about with Paul on the road to Damascus, and these men here, they're going about their business, they think, right? and that voice comes and calls and comes into your life come after me you hear that voice and when you hear that voice with these men and with all of us here your life is never the same your direction your passions your time your relationships nothing should be the same from there on out immediately it says they dropped everything they left their families and the only jobs they ever knew Walked away from him right then. That is total commitment, isn't it? And that's Luke 14 again. Isn't that what we read? How to hate your mother, father, sister, brother, wife, even yourself. It's the same message. It's the message throughout the entire Bible. So, commitment to Jesus, it should take priority over our livelihoods and our families. And listen, the Christians in the Middle East could preach this better than I am because they live that literally in vivid colors. Because for them, choosing Jesus, it does mean they can't get a job and their families, they don't just lose them, they're hunting them down to kill them. That is literally the truth. Like I said, they could preach this way better than I could. So I'd like to end with this question. Look at your life. Look in your heart. And ask yourself, who honestly shapes your daily, weekly, monthly schedule and time Is it the Lord Jesus or is it your family? Is it the Lord Jesus or is it your job? Because the king has come, heralding, proclaiming that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. It's present. And now is the time to press into it. Because one day, what do we know from some other parables? The door to the kingdom and its benefits, it will be shut And there's going to be a lot of people outside knocking, begging to get in. Lord, Lord, we heard you preach. We heard your word. And the call has come, a call we can't afford to ignore. Repent and believe the gospel. But look, who's the one that's breaking into our lives and coming in those comfort zones we have? Who is it? (laughs) It's God's Son. His appointed Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy to be followed, isn't he? Oh, of all people that we could confidently leave everything and trust our souls and our lives to him, he is the one, is he not? So listen, the devils knew who he was. We'll see that. You don't have to read far Mark. They knew who he was. That devil screams out in that synagogue, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And they respected and feared his authority, and they obeyed his commands reluctantly but they did and I'd say let's bow our knees to the Lord Jesus Christ he's worthy willingly in obedience and then we can sing we'll end with this with the hymn writer said this we can sing this take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee take my moments and my days and let them flow in endless praise Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use very power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, and it shall be thy royal throne. That's the message we're preaching tonight. The king has come. And he's proclaimed his kingdom as at hand, and the throne he reigns on now is the hearts of those that are his. And I'd say, just like we just heard in that hymn, let's give him our hearts, that they can be his royal throne. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, that in the fullness of time, you sent your son, your only son, The king, the anointed king, the Lord Jesus, who has ushered in the kingdom of God. And we just thank you, Lord, that that since that kingdom has come, we no longer have to be subject to the kingdom of darkness, that we can be granted deliverance and healing and forgiveness and peace and joy. All those benefits of the kingdom, we don't have to wait for. And we just thank you, Lord, for the message and the revelation that tells us that by faith we can press into those benefits now. We don't have to wait. And I just ask you, Lord, that you'll just put that desperation in all of our hearts, that desperation to seek you, Lord, in prayer and to seek first and only the kingdom of God and its righteousness, his righteousness. And I just thank you, Lord. I just ask you that you'll do that for everyone here. That is my prayer. And thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen.